0: COVID-19 broke the economy. What if we don't fix it? Instead of reopening society for the sake of the economy, what if we continue to work less, buy less, make less for the sake of the planet? By Shayla Love. At the end of March, Donald Trump tweeted, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. He was referring to the economic ramifications of shutting down the country in order to protect the public from the novel coronavirus, which has now killed over 100,000 Americans. Many Republican lawmakers have echoed the need to reopen businesses and get people back to work. In March, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said on Fox News that the economy must be salvaged, even if it meant that older people would take a chance with their lives to do so. The economy is in trouble, and the first quarter of the year, gross domestic product, or GDP, contracted 5%, the largest quarterly rate of decline since last recession, reported the Wall Street Journal. One week in May, over 2.1 million unemployment claims were filed, bringing the total to over 40 million, or about one of every four workers in the United States. Proposed recovery and stimulus packages aimed to get the economy and employment back to where they were before the pandemic. But with everything closed or ramped down, what if instead of putting it all back, we kept certain industries closed? What if instead of going back to work full-time, we decided to work less, buy less, make less, and not fight to raise GDP at any cost? Certain researchers have argued that our hyper-focus on economic growth was problematic long before we knew the word SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. The degrowth movement has advocated for reducing production of goods, working hours, and inevitably GDP, all with the end goal of reducing carbon emissions. With the economy at a standstill, we're being challenged by some experts to envision a different kind of economy one that could help solve the climate crisis rather than make it worse. This was the major thrust of the movie Planet of the People by Michael Moore. The green energy people who are in bed with capitalism hated this movie. They want the economy to go, go, go! I haven't heard anyone yet frame the philosophical argument about why we'd be happier without being so pushed and urgent. I don't know why we assume that humans are better off when they're working harder as opposed to playing, or resting, or making music, or drawing pictures. I don't hear a lot of arguments about what we're supposed to be doing with our existence. The fundamental assumptions always seem to be, we all need to be working our asses off. The good old American work ethic. Saving the planet is great, but moving us all towards an existence where we don't exist merely to keep the corporations happy sounds pretty good to me too. As a matter of fact, I think I'd even prioritize a sane lifestyle over saving the planet. If we only have a few years left to live, why not be happy during the time we have? Tell the corporations to fuck off and let us enjoy life. While the pandemic has had a tangible effect on people's ability to work and spend money, it has also led global carbon emissions to fall by more than 8% so far, as Nature reported, three times the yearly emissions of Italy. Emissions dropped more than 1 billion tons in the first four months of 2020 compared to 2019. This is close to the emission reductions that are needed to meet the goals of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement and stop the planet from warming more than 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. The reduction of consumption, emissions, and lowering of GDP that is happening now is a side effect of the pandemic, not a sustainable or desirable way to slash carbon output, Because of the loss of human life, strict lockdowns, and shuttering of schools and small businesses we value. But in Future Earth, Maury Cohen, a professor of sustainability studies at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, wrote that the pandemic, from a sustainability standpoint, offers a rare window of opportunity both for quality of life and the habitability of the planet. Rather than aiming to have the economy and emissions jump back up after the pandemic is over, it could be a moment to think about how to keep emissions down as we reopen and rebuild. That might involve leaving growth behind. Jason Hickel, an economic anthropologist at the London School of Economics, said that we need to switch to renewable energy as quickly as possible, but that it's impossible to do that while growing the economy at the same time. A group of 1,100 experts from more than 60 countries recently signed a letter proposing guidelines to how the economy should be revived with a focus on climate, health, and well-being instead of growth. The economic hardships we are currently facing could be viewed as an opening to experiment with more progressive policies to ensure people can have access to what they need, like universal income or health care, in a post-growth economy. I don't know about you, but that expression, post-growth economy, has a beautiful ring to it. I used to be a delivery driver for blue rhino propane, and one of the admonitions in the training manual was to work with a sense of urgency. It makes my stomach hurt just thinking about it. Why should we have to work with a sense of urgency? Why not require our employees to work with a sense of joy and ultimate purpose? No, you can fuck urgency. I don't need urgency. I don't know who needs urgency. You don't get the chance to reset the economy every day or even every five years. A group of researchers recently wrote in Jacobin, this is our shot. We need to get it right. The underlying reason that economic growth is desirable for a country is that it implies that people who live there have access to money and all that's purchasable with that money, homes, healthcare, education, food, and more. It implies that the government of that country can invest in big projects to protect its people from the threats they face, climate change or a pandemic, for example. Since World War II, GDP has been used as the ultimate measure of a country's overall welfare. It represents the total value of everything produced in a country, both goods and services. But as David Pilling, the author of The Growth Delusion, Wealth, Poverty, and the Well-Being of Nations, said in an interview with the Washington Post, more stuff doesn't automatically equate to more well-being or to put it even more colloquially more happiness even if stuff was an indicator of well-being gdp is a cumulative number it being high doesn't mean that stuff is being distributed in a way that increases welfare currently the richest one percent own more than 40 percent of the world's wealth and the united states higher incomes are increasing at faster rates than middle class ones Having a high GDP doesn't even guarantee longer lives. The United States GDP per capita is $60,000, one of the highest in the world. Life expectancy is 78 and a half years. Many countries with lower GDPs have far higher life expectancies. South Korea has 50% less GDP per capita, but a life expectancy of 82.6 years. The initial response to the pandemic reminded us of this too. The United States was unable to rally resources for its healthcare workers or get testing off the ground despite its high GDP and has one of the highest death counts from COVID 19 in the world. Already, the pandemic is forcing countries to reevaluate GDP and what it means. In an unprecedented move, China decided not to set an annual GDP target this year, the first time they've done so since they began having GDP goals in 1990. Instead, they will give priority to stabilizing employment and ensuring living standards, Premier Lee Ki-kwang said at the National People's Congress. In the US, the Trump administration announced that it wouldn't be issuing its mid-year update to its economic forecasts. People aligned with the degrowth movement. I like that, the degrowth movement. Kind of goes along with the defund movement of the police. People aligned with the degrowth movement have said that heading into the biggest global economic crisis since the Great Depression reveals how fragile our economy was in the first place. What kind of a daft system means that if we put the brakes on and calm down for a few weeks, the whole thing implodes, wrote Laura Basu, a research fellow at the Institute for Cultural Inquiry at Utrecht University. I like Laura Basu. Because our economy as it functions now is dependent on growth, when it stops growing, we're not equipped to handle it. Robert Pollan, a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and co-director of the Political Economy Research Institute there, previously told Vice News that while shrinking the economy would reduce emissions, he was concerned about it as a solution because it would also almost certainly cause a recession. He was right. As we're seeing with pandemic economics right now, our economy shrank and we're in a recession as a result, but this only highlights how we need to decouple the ups and downs of the economy from quality of life, Hickel said. There is no relationship between GDP and human well-being, Hickel said. The degrowth movement wants to build an economy that focuses on human life rather than pushing an abstract number higher and higher. Doing so could ensure that the planet we live on remains habitable and not just habitable in terms of breathing the air, and not just habitable in terms of keeping our homes and cities from going underwater. We need to keep our psyches from going underwater. If things remain unchanged, our global temperatures will rise 3 to 5 degrees by the end of the century. At the end of 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report said that in order to avoid a climate breakdown, global emissions would have to be cut by half in 2030 and go down to zero by 2050. We've currently reduced overall GDP and emissions because of COVID-19, but it doesn't mean we're properly doing degrowth yet, said Julia Steinberger, a professor of Ecological Economics at the University of Leeds. We don't have the social services and programs that ensure everyone their basic needs, despite what's going on with the economy. Degrowth has always insisted on accompanying social policies to counteract the reduction in income people would experience. This is what makes degrowth different from a recession, Hickel said. Degrowth advocates for policies like universal basic income, a shortened work week, and other universal basic services like healthcare and education to compensate for less work and production. Others support a federal job guarantee, where people working minimum wage jobs to fuel production of things that are harming the climate are instead guaranteed jobs in green energy or infrastructure. Debt cancellation could alleviate people from needing to work more in order to pay off rising debts. But that would mean that the architects of our society aren't all fucking pricks. Hey, maybe that's a good idea. Along with robust other policies around healthcare, housing, and education, degrowth would mean that people can work and earn less without a massive blow to quality of life. It also calls for more progressive rates of taxation so that wealth is more evenly redistributed. Degrowth is not about degrowing the entire economy indiscriminately, but rather growing some sectors that are important and degrowing others that are destructive, Hickel said. We need sectors to grow that are important for human welfare while scaling down unnecessary sectors like the arms industry, the SUV industry, the McMansion industry, the single use plastic industry, things like that. We need the sector of public education to grow that includes the arts music, dance, theater, visual arts. A world like that where everyone could participate fully in an education that included things like that would be a world worth living in. Steinberger stressed that just as is the case in other forms of climate change activism, individual actions are important, but it's overwhelmingly governments, policies, and industries that need to step up to change. A report from the Center for Economic and Policy Research found that by reducing working hours in the US to those normal in Western Europe, energy use would decline by 20%. But an individual can't decide on their own to live in a post-growth economy and cut their working hours. They don't have the systemic support they would need to do so. So it's the rich assholes at the top of the pile that we need to persuade. That's where property-destroying riots come in. This was starkly shown by the single insufficient $1,200 check most U.S. residents got earlier this year or by how people were left to try to reach out to unresponsive unemployment offices or try to access small business programs that didn't work very well. It's not surprising you have a constituency that wants to get back to work, said Juliet Shore, a professor of sociology at Boston College. Does it feel wrong to not try and grow the economy back to where it was and keep it growing? Only if you don't recognize the ways it had failed us, Steinberger said, and how that growth wasn't benefiting most people. In 1965, CEOs made 20 times what typical workers made, but as of 2013, they made 296 times that amount. From 20 times to 296 times that amount. From 1973 to 2013, hourly wages rose only 9%, but productivity increased 74%. Despite the economic crisis, the stock markets have been rallying and the world is about to gain its first trillionaire. So what good is economic growth? Who is it good for? Why should we fight to get it back when the alternative could be a real solution to the climate crisis? Why should we fight to get it back when the alternative could be that we aren't spending all of our waking hours and soul energy working for heartless pricks? Not to mention the neoliberal bean counters I work for. Raise your hand if you work for a heartless neoliberal prick. Let me see him. It's quite clear that our economy is effectively organized around the welfare of capital rather than on the welfare of people, Hickel said. There's really no reason that we should be accepting that. As Kate Aronoff wrote in The New Republic, A recovery package could simply, and probably unsuccessfully, try to get the economy back up to where it was before the COVID-19 shutdowns took hold, complete with its decades of wage stagnation, exploding carbon emissions, and staggering inequality. But Kate, they're not gonna go down without a fight. No matter how logical you sound, the control freaks are not gonna willingly give up their turf. They're not gonna willingly give up control of the world's huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Degrowth also pushes for thinking about what our lives would look like without work being a central tenet. Whenever there's a crisis, everybody says we have to work more. Actually, no. If you want to save the world, work less, said David Graeber, an American anthropologist and the author of Bullshit Jobs. I've heard of that book. A book that argues that many jobs that we currently work are meaningless. Not to mention soul-sucking. As a society, we place moral value on working. We really do believe that if you're not out working hard, you don't deserve anything. You're a bad person, Graeber said. But that morality is perversely destroying the planet. Yet in many ways, the pandemic has made us define why a job or buying things is valuable outside of just economic growth. The pandemic gave us the term essential worker and has also shown that much of the work we do is not particularly necessary or enjoyable. We do it purely to get money to survive, Basu wrote. Basu, you are quickly becoming my favorite person. Graeber said that while he was writing bullshit jobs, he found that many people working aren't doing anything that anybody needs, either for basic survival or personal or creative fulfillment. Things from telemarketers to financial consultants exist for the sake of themselves, Graeber said. Wall Street exists for the sake of itself. Their job is to convince you there's some reason they should have that job. Graber is my second favorite person. Steinberger said when we ask ourselves what we need for everyone to live well, the list may be shorter than we think. And trimming the fat is the key to stopping the planet from warming too much and causing further destruction. In 2018, Steinberger and her colleagues, Dan O'Neill, Andrew Fanning, and William Lamb used an international data set to show that life satisfaction was correlated with having access to basics like sufficient nutrition, sanitation, energy access, education, social support, equality, democracy, employment, and income, not single-use plastic, fast fashion, large SUVs, or extremely large houses. Betsy DeVos, are you listening to this? I wonder if the people piling into the streets could be persuaded to target Betsy DeVos's boats. She likes big boats, and I cannot lie. Degrowth wants to shrink those parts of the economy, but not at the expense of the fundamentals. If we manage to get these policies in place, we will be able to provide really good living conditions, Steinberger said. We don't want to create actual material deprivation for people on the road to a better economy or a better planet, Shore said. That's why I don't like the term degrowth in the United States. It has a negativity to it. It focuses on what's being taken away, rather than a term which is really much more about meeting the needs of people and planet simultaneously. I don't know, that sounds sort of like the pearl-clutchers who are complaining about the term defund the police. It's a toxic phrase. Yeah, sure, I think you're my least favorite person in this article. I love the term degrowth. And maybe we can even defuck the planet while we're at it. But that's a pretty tall order. The pandemic is teaching us that carbon emission reduction is possible. A pandemic is not the best way to approach the climate crisis, of course, but it shows the power of collective action. After all, the point of the lockdown was to stop the spread of a virus, not to reduce emissions. Oh, you don't think boomer remover is the answer? I guess that's good since I'm a boomer. I sometimes wonder about that, though. That's not what people were trying to do, but they were able to do it, Steinberger said. If people take something seriously enough, they can act in a way overnight to reduce emissions. The pandemic revealed that the government is able to pull together trillions of dollars for public relief when it needs to. Sorry, that wasn't for public relief. That was for corporate relief. Let's not get that one mixed up. Narrowly opening the door to the idea that it could do something similar for other serious health and safety issues like climate change in the future. We saw how quickly the government sprung into action to do things that seemed impossible, Shore said. I know this would scare the shit out of my parents if they ever knew I was saying it, but I explained this to my college class today. I said the reason the government was able to offer trillions of dollars in pandemic relief to big business was because they can print money out of thin air. We've never had to raise taxes to fund our huge military-industrial complex. Our economy certainly can support it and we spend about half of it on military. We can certainly spring into action, and by we, I mean the Fed can certainly spring into action to print more money to solve this problem if we collectively agree that that's what should be done. We just need to explain some things to the rich assholes at the top of the pile. And Hickel said that previous critics of degrowth have said that there is no emergency break on the economy. We now know that's not true. Property destroying protests also serve as a pretty good emergency break. Suddenly, this virus comes along and it's clear there is an emergency break and it can be pulled relatively easily, Hickel said. The government can, in fact, slow down parts of the economy for the sake of protecting public health and human well-being. In a way, the curtain has been pulled back and the Wizard of Oz exposed, especially now that a lot of us are coming to the full realization that the Fed really can print money out of thin air. We can imagine ways of pulling it that are ecologically meaningful and socially safe. Cognitive seals have really been broken. Sounds like it would be a good time for us workers to stick together and take control of our own lives. Who's with me?